if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the last page and last chapter of the book of Matthew. And we're going to take a look at just these last few verses, the last four verses of this gospel, which we have been studying, I think, for now almost two years or more. And I know you're probably anxious to know what we're going to study next. And uh, we'll hold that till the end of the class, and then we'll tell you about where we're going to go from here. Uh, but this is not the end of the Bible study, the Rector's Bible study. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, we're just going to move on to another book, probably something a little shorter than the Gospel of Matthew, just to give us a bit of a break as we head into the spring. But let's go ahead and, and look at the end of Matthew's Gospel. But first, let's ask the Lord for his blessing on our time together. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One of the really interesting things about the Gospel of Matthew, one of the surprising things about the Gospel of Matthew, is that it doesn't end the way that we would expect it to end. Uh, last week we took a look at the account of the resurrection, and certainly this was the most significant event in the history of the world. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, what we call the Easter event, was the most significant event that has ever occurred in the midst of human history. It surpasses in significance even Christmas. Now, that's not generally the way we treat Easter uh, in our culture today. Christmas has become so secularized that people are absolutely obsessed with, with the Christmas holiday. And certainly Christmas is important. We certainly don't want to downplay the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but nor do we want to downplay his birth in Bethlehem. That was a significant event. The, the incarnation is that great mystery that God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, deigned to walk among us, to take on human flesh. If you heard my Christmas Eve sermon, we talked about what that meant for Jesus to take on flesh, for God to become incarnate. Uh, that was a great mystery. It was a profound thing. The Greeks could not even imagine that. Uh, for the Greeks, the gods were transcendent. They were removed. They were aloof. They dwelt in that space between the worlds, and they were not the least bit interested in human beings. And yet the great claim of Christianity is that God came down and he took on our flesh. He became, as I said, incarnate. You may be familiar with um, chili con carne. What is chili con carne? It's, it's chili with the meat. God came down and took on skin. He took on meat, and he dwelt in our midst. But the reason why I say Easter surpasses even Christmas in significance is this. Just ask yourself, if Jesus Christ had become a man and walked among us for 30 years, 
but then at the end of those 30 or 33 years, had decided to return to the Father without ever mounting the arms of the cross, dying and rising again, would you and I be any better off? Would we be any better off than if he had never come in the first place? Now, it's true, we would certainly be able to say that at one point in history, God came down and he walked among us. God came down and he experienced the same things that you and I experienced. But if God had done that and returned to heaven without paying the price for our sin and rising for our justification, the fact remains you and I would be no better off. We would still be in our sin. So it's important that we understand that the real significance of Bethlehem is that it is the first step on the road that ultimately leads to Calvary and to the empty tomb. So Easter is the great keystone of our faith. You remove that keystone, and the whole of Christianity falls apart in wreck and ruin. And so we took a good hard look at the resurrection last week. We took a look at some of the evidences for the resurrection, for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because we said that the gospel writers go to great lengths to make it very clear that this was a physical bodily resurrection. It was a miraculous intervention on the part of the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so because it is such a significant event, we would expect that Matthew would end on that high note. I mean, where can you go from there? Where, where, where can you go from the resurrection? But interestingly enough, that is not how this gospel ends. The gospel does not end with the resurrection. The gospel, surprisingly, does not end with Jesus' glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father. Instead, the gospel ends with the Great Commission, with Jesus commanding his disciples to go into all the world to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all men. Now, the New Testament records at least 10 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, plus Jesus' appearance to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And what's interesting is that in at least eight of those post-resurrection appearances, Jesus gives a specific commission to those who saw him, a specific commission to go out and proclaim his resurrection to the world. Now, the resurrection was an event that changed people. It certainly changed Jesus. I like to point out, it's in John's gospel in particular, that one of the strange things about Jesus after the resurrection is that people, initially at least, didn't recognize him. And that was certainly the case with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. When Jesus appeared to her there in the garden, she was weeping, and she didn't recognize him. She thought that he was the gardener. And it wasn't until Jesus spoke those words, Mary, it's me, that she suddenly recognized him. It was that familiar voice. It was the, the tone in which he addressed her that she suddenly recognized who he was. Through that veil of tears, she suddenly recognized Jesus, the resurrected Lord. But initially she didn't. She thought, as I said, that he was just somebody working there in the garden. The same was true, incidentally, for the disciples. We're told that after the resurrection, Peter and Andrew, James and John, the rest, they returned to Galilee. That's where they were from. And they were out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They had toiled all night long, and they had caught nothing. And this sort of shadowy figure appeared there by the Sea of Galilee. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've actually been to this very site. 
And he cried out from the shore to the disciples, have you caught anything? And they replied, no, we've been out all night, but we haven't caught a thing. And he said, throw your nets on the other side. Now, those were the same words that Jesus had spoken to the disciples three years earlier. It had been a similar situation. They'd been out all night long trying to catch something, hadn't caught a thing. Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side. You'll recall that Peter at first uh, was, not was not happy about that. He was rather upset. He said, we've been out all night long. I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. Who are you? You're a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? And almost as if to prove the Lord wrong, he said, well, because you say so, I'll do it. And we're told they put out, put down their nets on the other side of the boat, and lo and behold, the catch of fish was so great that the boats almost began to sink. The nets began to tear. Well, here it was three years later. It's after the resurrection. Jesus appears by the Sea of Galilee. They don't recognize him until he speaks those familiar words, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, John turns to Peter and says, it's the Lord. And Peter put on his outer garment, dove in to the sea. So they didn't recognize Jesus initially until he spoke again, as he did with Mary, those familiar words that they had heard so many times before. And the same is true if you turn to the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. It's that first Easter. Two of the Lord's disciples were making their way out of the city toward the small village of Emmaus. And Jesus came and joined them on the road. But we're told they were kept from recognizing him. In fact, they walked with him for several hours, for miles down the road until eventually they came to the village and he was going to go on from there, and they invited him to come in and have a meal. And when Jesus broke the bread, again, a familiar act, all of a sudden we're told their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, as I said, the Gospels go to great lengths to make it very clear that this was a physical, bodily resurrection. The disciples had the opportunity to see Jesus eat a meal. They had the opportunity to examine his wounds. Thomas had the opportunity to take his fingers, put them in the nail prints, take his hand and plunge it into the Lord's side where the lance had been. So it was a physical body, and yet somehow the resurrection had so transformed Jesus that he was hardly recognizable even to those closest to him. But it wasn't just that the resurrection changed Jesus. The resurrection changed those who were closest to him. A transformation just as extraordinary as the one that took place in Jesus almost took place in the lives of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the others. Where do we find those men on that first Easter? Behind bolted and barred doors for fear of the authorities. They're cowering. But then you turn two pages in your Bible to the book of Acts, and lo and behold, what are they doing? They're out there preaching to the very same Jewish authorities that had condemned Jesus to dead, death. And truth be known, had the power to put them to death as well. I mean, after all, these men were not nearly as famous or as threatening as Jesus had been. And if these religious leaders had put Jesus to death, they certainly would have no qualms about putting Peter and Andrew and the rest to death. And yet here they were. Something had transformed them. They were now courageous. Those who had been lambs were suddenly lions for the sake of Christ. And what was it that they were preaching to the crowds and even to the Jewish religious leaders, to the members of the Sanhedrin? They were preaching the resurrection, that the one who was dead was alive again. And so this resurrection power of Christ changed them. And it certainly changed the Apostle Paul. 
Paul had been a persecutor of the church. The way I've described him is to say that he was the Heinrich Himmler of his day. He was going out and systematically dismantling the church and putting men, women, and children into prison and even unto death. It was Paul who presided over the death of the very first Christian martyr so, there, uh, Stephen, in that public square. We're told that they took their cloaks off and they pummeled Stephen to death and they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. That was Paul prior to his conversion, prior to his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. But once he encountered Jesus Christ, he who had been the great persecutor of the church becomes its greatest defender. He who had tried to destroy the gospel now becomes its greatest proponent. That's an extraordinary change, you see. And what was it? It was an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. That's what changed the apostle Paul. The way that Luke describes it in Acts, I think, is very important. So keep your finger there at the end of Matthew's gospel and skip over, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. It's a familiar story you know about Paul's conversion there on the road to Damascus. But what I want you to notice is how the resurrection changed Paul. We certainly know that it brought about a, a transformation in his life, but that transformation was evident in one thing in particular right away. So Acts chapter 9, let's just go ahead and refresh our memory and read through these verses. But Saul, that is Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's how the early church was described, the Christians were described as the followers of the way, because Jesus had declared himself to be the way, the truth, the life. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And as he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. This is critical. For he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, that's the part of the story we're familiar with. 
this, this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, this encounter with Ananias who was sent by Christ to uh, restore Paul's sight. But it's this next part of verse 19 and verse 20 that I think is so critical. It tells us how the resurrection changed Paul immediately. It wasn't a gradual transformation. It was something that happened instantaneously. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Immediately. He began to do what? He began to testify about Jesus Christ. He began to tell others and to do it with such power and authority that we're told in verse 21, all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. A change was wrought in the life of Paul, and the evidence of that change was what? It was that immediately he went out and began to tell others. He began to share the good news that the one who had been crucified was alive again and was the king of glory. Now, this is very important for you and for me. Because this is really the first evidence of the new life of Christ in a believer. Jesus had said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. What is required, Jesus was saying, is a new birth, a transformation. It's like a child being born, a child who's been in a womb who comes out into an altogether new world. Jesus is using that to describe the new life that is implanted within the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit when they believe. And when a child is born, what is the first thing that the parents listen for? What's the first thing that the doctors listen for? It's a cry. That cry is the evidence of new life. If a baby comes out and the doctor clears their lungs and there is no cry, there's a problem. In the old days, what did they do with the, with the baby? Hold him upside down and spank his bottom until he began to cry. Because that cry was the sign of new life. Well, let me tell you something. What is true physically is also true spiritually. And that's why the gospel of Matthew does not end with the resurrection, but with the cry of new life. Because the resurrection, if we really believe it, if we really encounter the risen Christ, transforms us. It leaves us different. We are no longer the same. And one of the first proofs of the new life implanted within us is that cry, that desire to tell others of what Jesus Christ has done, that he is not dead, the tomb is empty, he is alive. This is so important because we have a tendency, I think, to think that our faith is a private matter. Now, people oftentimes say that to me. They say, I want you to understand. In fact, I have a member of my family who likes to say this to me all the time. He says, I want you to know, Jeff, I really believe, but I just want you to know my faith is a private matter. Now, I think I know what he means by that, but I need to make a correction here. Our faith as Christian people 
is not a private matter. It is a deeply personal matter, to be sure. But it is by no means a private matter. Jesus' last words to his disciples here in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you turn a few pages to the book of Acts, you have the Acts version of the Great Commission as well, and Jesus' final words there to his disciples prior to his ascension is that they were to do what? They were to go and tell everybody. And my friends, that is our responsibility as well. Sometimes people wonder, well, how can I know that I really am in Christ? How can I know that I really do have a relationship with Christ? One of the ways that you can know is whether or not you have this desire to share the good news that Christ is alive with others. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that some of us tend to be introverts, and some of us tend to be extroverts. And for extroverts, this comes much easier. But it's not that you have to be eloquent, my friends. It's not that you have to be um, someone who is capable of speaking in front of a crowd. I'm well aware of the fact that for some people, speaking in front of the crowd is the most terrifying prospect imaginable. But there are ways to share your faith. One way to share your faith is to simply tell others what Christ has done in your life. You don't have to be a great apologist for the Christian faith. You don't have to be able to go out and and, and like Paul did there in Damascus, prove that Jesus was the Christ. All you need to do is share what Christ has done for you. If you are a Christian, then obviously he's transformed you in the same way that he transformed them. We don't have to be afraid about this. If Christ is precious in our lives, we will naturally want to do this. I remember seeing um, an elderly couple in a church that I had they had a bumper sticker on the back of their car. It said, let me tell you about my grandchildren. And just to be polite, I, I was not, uh, because confession is good for the soul, I was not being sincere when I said this. I said, oh, well, tell me about your grandchildren. Big mistake. I stood there for 45 minutes in the parking lot while they showed me every picture imaginable and told me everything about their grandchildren, grandchildren that I didn't know and quite frankly did not care to hear. But they were enthusiastic about it. People will tell you about their golf games, won't they? They'll tell you about their college. They'll tell you about any number of things. My goodness, if Jesus Christ is alive and present in our lives, isn't that something we want to share with the world? So it is not a private matter, a deeply personal matter, yes, but it is by no means a private matter. And it is one of the things that those early disciples did. And one of the reasons they did it is not simply because the love of Christ constrained them. They did it because Jesus commanded it. Now, this raises the question, how are we to do that? How are we actually to go about sharing the gospel. And, and what is the content of the gospel that we are to share? Well, we're not left in any dark about this or any doubt about this. Jesus makes it very clear. In verses 16 and 20, the last verses of this gospel, I want you to notice Jesus uses one word over and over again. There are four verses. He uses the word four times. It is the word all. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
Now, when it says some doubted, this probably doesn't mean the 12. There were many disciples there. There were the 12 plus about 120 others, we're told, immediately following the resurrection. Now, that company would grow to over 3,000 on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would descend upon the apostles and Peter would stand up and deliver that great address, and we're told that 3,000 people were added to their number. That is church growth on a huge scale. But at least following the resurrection, we're told there were about 120, and some of these people were doubtful. They could hardly believe their eyes. There was Jesus, but how could that be? They had seen him die, and they had never seen anybody come back from the dead, and yet there he was. And so some doubted. But look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, here's the first all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, here's the second all, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, here's the third all, all that I have commanded you. And fourth, and behold, I am with you always. The Greek literally says, all the days, even to the consummation of all things. So when we proclaim the gospel, we are to declare that Jesus has all authority. We are to proclaim that to all nations. We are to teach, him, to teach them to observe all that he commanded. And we are to remember that as we go forth into a world that is sometimes hostile, he promises to be with us all our days. Now, each one of these things is deserving of a closer look. So first of all, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does he mean when he says all authority in heaven? Well, certainly that would be a testimony to his divinity. The only authority, the only ultimate authority in heaven is whose? It's God's authority. So when Jesus declares to his disciples in the wake of his resurrection that all authority in heaven has been given to him, what Jesus is claiming is divinity. Now, Jesus had made that kind of claim over the course of the previous three years. But let's be honest, when we encounter somebody who claims to be a god or who claims to be somebody extraordinary, we have a tendency to view that with skepticism. And there were many people in Jesus' day who viewed it with skepticism, who were actually offended by his claim to be divine, to be one with the Father. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Well, that phrase, I am, was that sacred name that had been given by God, a declaration of himself. When God encountered Moses there in the burning bush, and Moses came close, we're told that out of the bush came this word that said, take off your shoes, for you are standing on holy ground. And God spoke to Moses and said, I have chosen you to be the instrument to go and stand before Pharaoh and declare that he is to let my people go. And you are going to be the instrument by which my people will be liberated from their captivity in Egypt. You will lead them to the land that I have prepared for them. Tell them their God has seen their suffering and has decided to act. And Moses turned to the bush and he said, if I say that the God of your fathers has seen your suffering, they're going to ask me, who is this God? Where has he been for 400 years? Who are you? What name shall I give? And God said, you tell them I am who I am. That was the sacred name of God, the Tetragrammaton. It was the name that no one was permitted to utter. 
And Jesus says to the religious leaders before Abraham was, I am. You claim to be children of Abraham, but there is one among you who is greater even than your father, the patriarch Abraham. And that's me. Now, that was an extraordinary claim. It was so offensive to the Jewish religious leaders. We're told they wanted to take him to the brow of the hill and throw him off. They wanted to stone him. They wanted him to put him to death. But now in the wake of the resurrection, all that Jesus claimed, well, it was ratified. It was declared to be true. His resurrection proved that he really was who he claimed to be. So when he says, all authority in heaven has been given to me, this was a testimony to his divine nature. But there's something else here. That phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth, that is often used in the New Testament to describe spiritual forces. Not just God's authority, but spiritual forces. Spiritual forces, for example, of wickedness. Now keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6 for just a moment. This is a familiar passage. You know it. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the what? The authorities. There's the phrase against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So when Jesus says he has been given authority over the powers of heaven, he's not necessarily talking about the heaven where God dwells, but he's talking about these spiritual forces, these cosmic powers, these authorities that are in the heavenly places, that is, are not earthly in nature. Now, if you go back from Ephesians chapter 6 to the first chapter of Ephesians, you have a different declaration. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul is writing. He says, And having your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So when Jesus, going back now to Matthew, says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. What he is saying is, I have authority not over just the earth. I have authority over the cosmic forces. I have authority even over Satan. Not even Satan can triumph over what I have done. Certainly the resurrection was the proof of that. Satan had done his worst on Good Friday. But God had triumphed on Sunday. So when Jesus says all authority has been given to me, it means power over spiritual forces. It means power over his own people. 
Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what he is saying is he has authority over the spiritual forces. He has authority over you and me and our lives. And what's more, he has authority over the whole earth, over all people. Try as they might, the nations of the earth can never overcome the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of this world will ultimately become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ, and he will reign forever. So Jesus says he has all authority. And this authority is to, pro be, to, is to be proclaimed, verse 19, in all the nations. In all the nations. The good news of the risen Jesus Christ is not confined to a particular place or to a particular people. Now, the disciples thought this. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is the second volume to a two-volume work, the first volume being the Gospel of Luke. And in Acts chapter 1, we have a description of that 40-day period between the Lord's resurrection and his ascension. All right, so Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of about 40 days. And one of the first questions, this is interesting, that the disciples ask Christ following his resurrection. Now, I, I can have, I can think of any number of questions I would love to ask Christ following his resurrection. I've got a long list of questions that I would like to put to Jesus. But the first question that we're told came out of the mouth of the disciples was this one, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They knew that Jesus had been talking about the kingdom over the course of his three years with them. Over and over again, he had mentioned the kingdom of God. He taught them to pray, saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The, his greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, was about kingdom living in a fallen world. The reason why Jesus was crucified by the Roman authorities was why? Because he claimed to be a king. They knew that Jesus had come to establish a kingdom. And so they naturally assumed that now, in the wake of the resurrection, he was going to do it. But it's the way they asked the question that is so curious. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, first of all, that word restore implies the return of something that had already existed which tells us that what they were imagining was a physical kingdom. In spite of the fact that Jesus had told them over and over again it was a spiritual kingdom, not built with bricks, mortar, or stone, did not advance by force of arms, it was built in men's hearts, nevertheless, they were still thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom very much like the Roman Empire. That's what was meant by the word restore. Are you going to return the kingdom? The kingdom like the glory days of David and Solomon. And the second thing that is implied here was that this was going to be an ethnically restricted kingdom. It was going to be a kingdom. It was going to be a glorious kingdom, and it was going to be a kingdom for Jews. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is for Jews and for Jews alone. Now, if Gentiles want to join, that's fine, but they have to first become Jews. But Jesus' final command to his disciples there in the Gospel of Matthew is that they are to go into all the world, not, to, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, not just to Galilee, but to Samaria, to the ends 
of the earth. And we have that marvelous picture in the book of Revelation, the consummation of all things, when John says, and behold, I saw a great multitude which no one could number from every tribe and language and nation and people under heaven. So Jesus says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me, and that needs to be proclaimed, what? To all nations. Here's the third thing he says, and teach them. Once you've made them my disciples, teach them to do what? To observe all that I have commanded you. So we are to preach Jesus' ultimate authority as the crucified and risen Lord of the universe. We are to preach this to all people, and we are to teach them to observe all that he has commanded us. Now, you've heard me say before, Christianity at its heart is not about religion. It's not about rules and regulations. Christianity at its heart is about relationship. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing him personally. It's not simply about knowing about him, like you know about the president of the United States or the queen of England. It's about having an intimate, personal relationship with the living God. Jesus is alive. And that means that you and I are capable of having a relationship with him. Now, this raises a question, how are we to know God? Well, we can't know God in and of our own strength. We, we, we cannot discover who God is. Obviously, you and I are creatures. That means we're finite. We're limited. God is infinite. The only way that we can come to know him is if he reveals himself to us. The creature cannot begin to understand the creator unless the creator makes himself known. And Christianity teaches that that is exactly what God has done. He has made himself known to us that we might have a relationship with him. Now, how does he do that? He does it in two ways. Two forms of revelation. God reveals himself, first of all, in what is known as general revelation. That is, he reveals himself in the creation, in the things that have been made. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. He says, basically, God's signature is written across everything that we see. We live in an orderly universe. This is one of the most extraordinary things, that the universe can be studied, that it has order to it. We talk about the laws of physics. Well, if there are laws that govern the universe, that implies that there is a lawgiver. Why is there order instead of chaos? It's because there is one who holds all things together. So God reveals himself in the creation. But the problem with the creation is that while it can tell us that there is a God, it really cannot tell us what that God is like. Because the creation has some beautiful things in it, but it also has some very tragic and scary things in it. So while general revelation can tell us that there is a God, it cannot tell us what that God is like. For that, we need a special revelation. And God provides that as well. He provides a special revelation, the Word. This is what John chapter 1 is all about. In the beginning was the Word. The Greek word is logos, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And, verse 14, the Word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now, who is the Word made flesh? It is Jesus Christ. If you really want to know God, who God is, what God is like, you'll find no better picture than the person of Jesus. But of course, Jesus dwelled on this earth for what? A relatively brief period of time, 33 years. He only ministered for three of those years, and then he ascended and went back to the Father. So if he is no longer with us, how are we to have an encounter with him today? How are we to know him today? God continues to reveal himself no longer in the word made flesh alone, but in the word written. That is to say, the early Christians recognized, the apostles in particular, that they had an advantage that succeeding generations would not have. They had seen Jesus. They had touched Jesus. They had listened to his teaching. They had experienced the resurrection. And so they recorded these events for you and for me. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in and through their words, we can encounter that same Jesus Christ in the words of Scripture. And this is why I would say that the real crisis in the contemporary church is the place of the Bible. Now, yes, there is a proper way to interpret the Bible and an improper way to interpret the Bible. There is symbolic language, for example, used in the Bible in many places. We're not supposed to read this just in a clunky sort of way. But when it all boils down to it, there are only three views of Scripture. The first view is the classic view of the church, namely that here in the pages of Scripture, you and I encounter the Word of God. Paul, writing to Timothy, said all Scripture is theopneustos, 2 Timothy 3.16. Theopneustos, theo, meaning God, it's the word from which we get theology, the science of God. Panustos, it's the word from which we get pneumonia. It means breath, spirit. Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed. God so superintended the process. Now, yes, Matthew wrote his gospel, and John, Mark, and Luke, and so forth. You have all these different writers. Paul wrote portions of the New Testament, Peter, James, and so forth. But what we believe is that God, the Holy Spirit, so guided their work, so superintended the process, that what was produced was not ultimately the work of Paul, but the work of God. And it's there in the pages of Scripture that you can encounter the risen Jesus Christ. That's the classic view. The second view, which became very popular around the turn of the 19th century, was that Scripture were the words of men about God. This was a post-Enlightenment society. People became skeptical of supernatural things, and so they began to argue that the Bible was not a word from God. It was simply the words of men about God. It has sociological and historical value, but you can't view it as a divine revelation. Now, the church, particularly mainline denominations, quickly realized that that was a threat. And so what they tried to do is find a mediating position. They argued that what the Bible is is the words of men and the words of God. It's both. And so some portions of it are authoritative for our lives, and some portions are not necessarily authoritative to our lives. But the question is, how do you determine which is and which isn't? Well, the answer is you hand it over to the scholars. Let the scholars tell us what's the Word of God, 
and which portions are the words of men. Well, what you quickly discover is that the scholars couldn't agree. They're creatures of time and space like the rest of us. They are children of their culture. And so they disagreed. And that's why I said, if you step back from this and look at it objectively, you quickly discover that the only tenable position for Christian people is to believe that the Bible is indeed the Word of God and that God speaks to us through His Word. And by an encounter with His Word, we can come to have an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. We can come to have a personal relationship with Him. And that's what Jesus was telling his disciples. As you go out and you begin to make followers of others, teaching them that I have authority, teaching them that I am crucified and raised from the dead, teach them to observe all that I have taught you. And that's what we're commanded to do, to teach others all that Christ has taught us. What does the scripture teach us? Well, first and foremost, it teaches us that we need a Savior. It teaches us about the depravity of man. Paul, writing in Romans, says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're living in a time and an age in which people want to believe that men and women are basically good. Now, don't get me wrong. Men and women are capable of great good. But if the Nazi regime taught us anything at all in the 1930s, if the period of Stalin and Mussolini taught us anything at all, it teaches us that the same human beings that are capable of great good are also capable of enormous evils. If you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 6, you have the story of mankind just prior to the great flood when God brought judgment on the creation. And we're told that when God looked at humanity, what he saw was that the inclination of their hearts was only to do evil all the time. What a damning statement. The every inclination of their hearts was only to do evil all the time. So the first thing we need to teach people if we're going to be faithful and teaching what Christ taught is that mankind is not basically good. We fell from grace, and every aspect of our being is somehow corrupted. Now, that doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be. The depravity of man does not mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. It simply means that there is not an aspect of our human nature that is not tainted in some way by sin. And we need to recognize that. It means that you and I cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments. And here's the second thing we need to recognize, that because we are fallen, the payment for that, the penalty for sin is death, spiritual, moral, and physical death. That's what Paul says, the wages of sin is death. So as we go out to proclaim the news of Jesus Christ, as we go out trying to teach all nations everything that he has commanded, we have to teach them that they are in need of a Savior, that the penalty for their sin is death. But hallelujah, God has provided a means by which we can be saved. We are saved not by our own efforts, not by trying to dig ourselves out of this hole. We are saved by grace, his undeserved, unearned favor. That's what grace means. And that grace is received how? Through faith. We are saved when we simply place our trust 
and what Jesus Christ did on our behalf there on the cross. A sacrifice that we know was accepted to God because of the resurrection. Here's the fourth thing that we have to teach. Once somebody receives that saving work, they need to understand that they become a new creation. They can no longer live for themselves, no longer follow their own path. They are no longer the captains of their own fate or the masters of their own destiny. Jesus Christ is Lord of their lives. He has to take his rightful place on the throne of their hearts. It's been said, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, then Jesus Christ is not Lord at all. So that's the fourth thing that we need to teach people, that once you are saved, you are to submit yourselves to Jesus Christ and serve him and obey him in all things. And there should be fruit of this. There should be evidence of this. This is the next thing. Jesus himself said, you'll know them by their fruits. It's interesting. We're all familiar with that wonderful passage from Ephesians, you are saved by grace through faith. But we forget the very next verse that says, for we are Christ's workmanship created in him for good works. So we are to teach the depravity of man, the penalty for sin, the promise of salvation and forgiveness by grace through faith, the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, the necessity of living fruitful lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the Spirit's fruits, and they should be the characteristic of our lives. And finally, we are to teach that for those who belong to Jesus Christ, nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what Christ taught his disciples, and that is what you and I, having encountered the risen Jesus Christ, as evidence of our salvation, are to teach others. As you share your faith, all of those elements are important. It does no good to go out and tell people that they're good. If we tell them that, Paul says we have robbed the cross of its power. If we're good people, why in the world did Jesus Christ die for us? We need to be very clear with people, sin is serious business. We have a tendency to view sin as though it's a small thing, but it crucified Christ. We need to tell people that there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. You're not going to get in he into heaven, as John Houseman used to say, the old-fashioned way, by earning it. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't save yourselves, but hallelujah, God loves you so much that he's provided a means by which you can be saved by simply trusting in the work that he's done on your behalf. But now he needs to be Lord of your life. He who is your savior needs to be your commander. And we are to live in such a way that people can see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven and know that nothing Nothing's ever going to separate us from his love. So all that I have commanded you, 
Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Preach this message to all nations. Teach them to abide by everything, all that I have commanded you. And here's the final thing. And behold, I will be with you always. Always. Even to the end of the age. How many of you are familiar with these words? Parting is such sweet sorrow. You know what they come from? William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Juliet says to her beloved, parting is such sweet sorrow. It's interesting. She describes it as a sorrow because leaving those we love is difficult. It's hard. But she describes it as a sweet sorrow. Why is it sweet? Because there is the promise of reunion. When Juliet spoke those words to Romeo, she anticipated that while they were parting, they would be together again. That is the promise that Christ gives to you and to me, but it's an even greater promise. It's not that we will see him again. The promise is that he will be with us. No matter where we go, no matter what we face, his promise is that he will be with us always. I think it's fascinating the way Matthew brings this all to a close. Because his gospel began with a promise that Christ would be with us. If you go back to the very first chapter, 27 chapters ago, you'll recall that the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph was ready to divorce Mary quietly because it appeared as though she was going to have a child out of wedlock. And the angel Gabriel intervened and said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. For the child that is conceived in her is the child of the Most High. The Holy Spirit has overshadowed her. And the one who is born shall be called Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. This gospel begins with the promise that God is with us, and this gospel ends with the promise that God will be with us always. He will be with us through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is the real evidence that you and I are citizens of this earth, but we are the citizens of another kingdom as well. The Holy Spirit is the earnest money, if you will. He's the down payment on our salvation. He is the promise that God is with us always. As we go forth into the world, living as people of Easter, people of the resurrection, as we share this good news that Jesus Christ is alive again, the world is going to mock us. The world is going to raise an eyebrow. The world is going to be hostile to us. But the promise is that in the midst of it all, we are not alone. He was mocked as we are mocked. He was brutalized as some will be brutalized. But as he rose from the dead, so too shall we rise again. And in the midst of it all, He's going to be with us. If you're a Christian today, God is with you, and he will never. It doesn't matter if you face cancer. It doesn't matter if you face disaster. 
It doesn't matter if you face a broken heart. It doesn't matter if you face financial ruin. There is one who sticks closer than a brother and who will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. It's a fitting close to a wonderful story, the most wonderful story the world has ever known. So let us be his disciples. Let us go forth and proclaim to all the world that all authority has been given to Jesus, that at the name of Christ every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Let's do it. Let's be willing to suffer everything for the sake of him who suffered for us. And let's never forget that nothing, nothing in all the world can ever separate us from his love. He's with us always, even to the end of our days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this marvelous gospel of Matthew. We have walked through this book for almost as long as Jesus walked and ministered. And we thank you for it. We pray that through the study of this word, we have come to know Jesus better. Perhaps some who've never known him personally have come to know him. And Father, we pray that we would continue to be a people of the book, encountering Jesus Christ in the word written, encountering him who is the word made flesh, that we may go forth and proclaim that word to all the world. And now, fathers, we come to the conclusion of this book and get ready to start another. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct us and use us as you use those 12 to turn the world upside down. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, some of you are wondering, what are we going to study next? We are going to take a look at Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It's a short book, but it is sometimes referred to as Paul's Ode to Joy, which is rather extraordinary when you consider the circumstances. Paul was in prison at the time that he wrote the epistle to the Philippians, and yet it is a book that is filled with confidence, hopefulness, and happiness. And that's certainly something that in our present day, given our present circumstances, we could use. So next week, we'll begin to take a look at Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Thank you for being with me through the study of Matthew. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you very soon.